when I was in high school, my favorite radio station, 105.3 Alternative Rock. They used to, they used to do this segment called Stupid Criminals. Where they'd feature guys like the, the drunk driver who tried to hide the smell of alcohol in his breath by inhaling an entire can of Axe body spray. Had to go to the ER. Or the man who was detained at Home Depot for a suspected bomb threat after he warned fellow customers to leave the restroom because he was, quote, fixing to blow it up. Some of y'all, some of y'all will get that later. But one of my favorites has to be the guy who was caught trying to rob the same bank two days in a row. You know, they say that criminals always return to the scene of their crime. It's just usually not the next day. Um, <clears throat> this morning in Acts chapter 5, we're going to read about a few criminals who do that very thing. They return to the scene of their crime not once but twice, and it's not out of stupidity, though. It's out of submission to God. So two weeks ago in our study through the book of Acts, we were in chapter 4. We heard that the priests and the Sadducees arrested the apostles in the temple because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the priests didn't like that. They were also jealous of the apostles' miraculous power to heal the sick, but being unable to deny that power, they instead ordered the apostles not to speak of Jesus again, and they released them. Well, guess where they turned back up? First thing out of jail in the very next chapter here in chapter 5. It's right back in the temple in Solomon's portico. They're resuming their ministry of physical and spiritual healing in Jesus' name. And this morning in chapter 5, we're actually going to see them get arrested not once but twice this time because an angel of the Lord is going to come break them out of prison only to send them back to the temple a third time to just keep on preaching. So I struggled to figure out how I was going to preach this text for two reasons. First, it's just so foreign to our everyday experience as Christians today. Here's a preview of the passage we're about to study together. The apostles perform miraculous healings for which the church is held in high esteem by the world. Unbelievers are attracted to the church in droves. And then the apostles are locked up, tried, and beaten for their faith. And there's the aforementioned supernatural intervention by an angel, and perhaps as extraordinary as anything is the opposition they encounter only inspires the apostles to even more boldness, indeed rejoicing in their suffering for Christ. So, miracles, angels, beatings, boldness, burgeoning church growth, we can easily begin to feel like we are 2,000 years removed from a story like this. But secondly, I, even more so, I struggled to prepare this message in Acts 5 because it really is so repetitious of the previous two chapters, chapter 3 and 4. Consider all the similarities that I have outlined for you in your bulletins there. The apostles heal and attract the crowds, the Sadducees envy, arrest, arraign, and charge them. The apostles nevertheless defy and even witness to these opponents, and so the Sadducees fear them and warn them to quit talking about them, but the apostles just go on praying and preaching in Jesus' name. It's the same basic plot line as the previous two chapters, nearly identical. So how do I preach this text without just repeating what we've already discussed the previous three weeks now? Well, that question led me to a deeper question in my preparation. Why is the text so repetitious anyway? Obviously, for one thing, because this all really happened, 
Right, these are true stories. The apostles were actually arrested, not once, but twice. They were arrested just a few weeks after Pentecost, and then again only a few days later. But I think if we look closer, there may be an even deeper reason for Luke's detailed repetition of this story. How many of you all remember from junior year AP English the literary device known as juxtaposition? Juxtaposition is placing two things side by side for rhetorical effect so as to highlight their differences. Usually in literature, it's two contrasting things like Cinderella's beauty stands out all the more juxtaposed against her stepsister's ugliness. But here, in chapter 5, and sometimes the more similar the two stories are, the more their slight differences begin to stand out. And if we look a little closer at Acts chapter 5, I think we're going to discover six subtle yet significant differences from the previous two chapters. And I think those differences hold the key to unlocking what the Lord wants us to glean from this passage this morning. So underneath each of these six plotline repeats that I've listed in your bulletin, I want to highlight these six new addition, additional elements to the story that we get uniquely in chapter 5. And even more importantly then, I want to try and tease out what each of these six new developments in the narrative teaches us, I think, about the gospel, okay? The gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, the good news that these apostles keep getting in trouble for preaching in the first place, that Jesus Christ died and was raised for the forgiveness of sins for all who would repent and trust in him. And we're going to discover six important things about that gospel this morning. So would you stand with me again as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word, from Acts chapter 5 will be in verses 12 all the way through the end, verse 42, have the, the, the text on the screen in front. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to give you a Bible at the info bar as well. But hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, <clears throat> so that even so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple again and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported uh, we found the prison securely locked, and the guards were still standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, Look, 
The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left, with, that left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again this morning for your word. Now, Father, I pray, we pray, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts collectively be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The first repeated motif here is the plot line of the apostles miraculously healing, which in turn then attracts a large crowd. We heard back in chapter 3, you remember, it was just one guy, the lame beggar at the temple gate. But here by chapter 5, we read that many signs and wonders were regularly done among, uh, by the apostles among the people. Folks here are even getting healed by Peter's shadow, and so what, what is new here, we discover, is the sheer scale of the apostles' ministry. Not only are the miracles themselves growing, his shadow has the power to heal, but, but so too is their reach. Verse 14 says, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So many new converts, they stopped even trying to count them all. But we know it must have exceeded the 3,000 that were added to the Lord back 
in chapter 2 must have exceeded the 5,000 added to the church back in chapter 4. So who knows how many thousands this more than ever addition to the church constituted. And verse 16 adds the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. Remember Jesus' great commission from chapter 1 of Acts. He said what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're going to see that progression unfold throughout our study of the book of Acts. But for four chapters now, their witness has been confined to Jerusalem. But here in chapter 5 is the first mention of the gospel reach expanding outside of the city of Jerusalem to the surrounding towns. And so the first thing to note here about the gospel is that it is growing. The gospel is growing. There's a reason that in Jesus' parables about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that his favorite metaphors were all organic. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. When you plant it, it grows. The kingdom of God is like leaven, that when it's worked into the dough, it expands. What is the application for us from that principle this morning? I think it's this. If the gospel is not growing within you and expanding out from you, then you need to check your heart because you may have planted the wrong seed. The gospel is inherently expanding and growing. According to the Bible, this good news about Jesus, it's not like just any other ordinary news. It's not just an inanimate fact like Russia invaded Ukraine or my Vols upset Kentucky in, you know, the basketball tournament yesterday. No, the gospel is is not just a factoid. It's alive and living things, healthy living things, they grow. The elders of this church asked me three years ago, almost to the day, when I transitioned into the lead pastor role here, said, you say you want to see West Hills grow. But what if it doesn't? What if God's plan for our church is that we stay a church of like 170 or so. The number probably in this room right now. I said, well, if we lived in one of the surrounding towns, the tiny little towns outside St. Louis, a town of 170 or so people, then I think I'd be content with that. But when 100,000 people drive by our church building every single day and three-quarters of them aren't in church anywhere and don't know the Lord, then no. If West Hills is still a church of 170 or so people in five years, ten years, I think something's wrong. And if it's me, then as elders, y'all are going to need to seriously reevaluate my employment here as lead pastor because the gospel was meant to grow. And that's not just true on the corporate church level, but it's true on a personal level as well. The gospel that saved you the moment you first believed is the same gospel that has to sanctify you day by day from one degree of glory to another. The gospel has got to continue to grow within you personally as well. Living things don't stay stagnant. They're they're either growing or they're what? They're dying. Which is it for you? The gospel ought not only to grow within you, but it's got to grow out from you as well. 
from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and beyond. We don't want to be lake Christians. You know the difference between lake Christians and river Christians? Lakes are stagnant. If they grow at all, the, the water level might rise by an inch or two, and then it subsides again in time. But rivers are dynamic because they've got a constant source from which they are being fed, and just as importantly, they've got a source into which they are constantly pouring out. We've got to be river Christians, brothers and sisters. Gospel input, gospel output. Discipleship means growing in the gospel. Missions means sending out the gospel. This is healthy biblical Christianity. Second, second repetition. The Sadducees, they envy and arrest the apostles. We hear they were jealous and greatly annoyed back in chapter 4. Here again in verses 17 through 21, they rise up filled with jealousy and they arrest the apostles again. But what's new here in chapter 5, you tell me this time, what's new in chapter 5, right there in verse 19, or should I say, who is new? Who is it? The angel. There's an angel. This is new. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and sent them right back to the temple to preach some more. Can you imagine the look on the Sadducees' faces when they stopped by the prison to fetch the apostles the next morning for their trial? It's even funnier when you realize, you learn that the Sadducees, they were the theological liberals of their day. They considered themselves too, too smart to believe in all that supernatural stuff like bodily resurrection or angels. I think the presence of the angel here is intended to assure us, you and me, that the gospel that we preach, it is bolstered. Bolstered means it's supported upheld, sustained, strengthened, backed, and supernaturally so. Imagine how invincible the apostles must have felt walking out of that jail that morning. No wonder they were able to say to the Jewish leaders in verse 29 with such boldness, look, we got to obey God, not y'all. I know you got to do your thing. Uh, you do your worst to us, but we're just going to tell you that um, if God's on our side, and if God wants us to keep witnessing for him, we're confident he can break us out of prison if he has to do it. He can shut the mouths of lions. He can, you know, protect us from flames in the fiery furnace. He can part the Red Sea. He can fell a giant with a single stone. That's the God who's backing our gospel. That's the God we're following. We're, we're going to stick with him. And Psalm 91.11 promises that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The idea of guardian angels, did you know it's biblical? It's biblical. Hebrews 1.14 identifies angels as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. That's us, the elect believers. Guardian angels. How would, would it have, let's make it practical. Practical. How would it have changed things for you the last time that you had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, but you chickened out, if instead you had had the spiritual eyes to see the host of angels surrounding you, cheering you on? Jesus said that angels throw a giant party every time a sinner repents and comes to Jesus. So I just imagine angel, anytime a believer 
gets in any kind of proximity to an unbeliever who's spiritually dead and bound for hell and needs to hear this message that we have, i got to imagine the angels just kind of flock. They're like, oh, what's about to happen? Are we going to throw a party? If only we had the eyes to see them, the angels, how might it bolster our evangelism? There's a story in the Old Testament where the king of Syria is mad at the prophet Elisha. And he summons his entire army, the entire Syrian army, against one guy. Seems like a fair fight. Elisha's servant cries out, Master, what shall we do? Elijah calmly replies, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays that God would open his servant's eyes to see the multitudes of fiery angel armies surrounding the enemy's encampment. Friends, the Bible reminds us this morning that we are engaged in a spiritual war. A spiritual war. A lot of talk about war the last few weeks. We've been in a war for 2,000 years now. And it's a war for people's souls. And it's eternal. The stakes are eternal. And we have a real enemy who wants nothing more than to distract and deceive and drag every single person that you and I love with him down to the pit of hell. But those who are with us are more than those who are with him. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so we can witness this morning, this week, with boldness, knowing that our gospel message is bolstered surrounded and supported by hosts of angels. Number three, third repetition is the Sadducees arraign and charge the apostles. Verses 21 through 28, eventually, after a lot of perplexity and embarrassment, the high priests, the council, the entire Jewish senate, they managed to track down the missing apostles in the least likely but the most public of places back in the temple third time. And so they bring them in again, but this time, unlike chapter 4, when the council had asked, by what power or by what name did you do this, this time they already know the answer to that question. And now they're not as concerned about the source of the apostles' power as they are the threat it poses to their own power. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching." And you intend to bring this man's blood even upon us? And so the new element here is their offense. The personal offense taken by these Jewish leaders. It's personal now for two reasons. Number one, because you didn't obey us. You didn't respect our authority when we told you to shut up about Jesus. But moreover, number two, now you're trying to blame us for his death? You intend to bring his blood on us? Again, this is ironic because these are the same leaders who just weeks earlier, during Jesus' crucifixion, exclaimed, his blood be on us and on our children. They asked for it. But this all points us to a deeper truth, and that's that the gospel is offensive. The gospel that you and I preach, proclaim, cling to, is inherently offensive. You know, we lament sometimes that it seems like Christianity is the only religion out there anymore that's not politically correct. 
our society doesn't seem to have a problem with Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, even Islam, that Christianity is deemed offensive. But we fail to realize is why. All those other religions are considered safe in our society because they're really about us performing externalities, whereas the gospel is all about God transforming internalities. Let me explain what I mean. In our society, there are two cardinal sins. Anything that threatens my autonomy and anything that questions my identity. I must run my own life and I must be myself and live my own truth. Now, most religions don't really threaten those two cardinal virtues. They essentially just instruct us to do good, not even be good, just do good. It's focused more on behavior. You still get to call the shots. We're not even going to get too personal here because religion is really about externality. Your actions, your behavior, do good, but not Christianity. Not the gospel. The gospel is an offense to both our autonomy and our identity. The gospel demands that you relinquish your cherished right to self-governance. Jesus has the nerve to suggest that the only thing your personal freedom to run your own life the way that you see fit has ever gotten you is in trouble. Sinful rebellion against the one who's really in charge here, God. But the gospel's offense goes even further than that to claim that the reason that you have failed as CEO of your own life is that there's something deeply, profoundly wrong with you at the personhood level. You sin because you're a sinner. That is your identity. And worst of all, the gospel says that there is not a single thing that you can do to fix it on your own. But here's the good news, that God, while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that you need a, a new Lord of your life because you've failed, you need a new identity because you're broken, but friends, Jesus offers you both this morning, he will be your Lord and your Savior, if you will but let him simply surrender your life to him in faith this morning, and you will be saved. It's the gospel. And it's such good news, but it's so offensive to people who want to run the show and want to believe that I'm good deep down. This is the offense of the gospel. The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Number four, fourth repetition is the apostles' response to the council. It's much the same in both chapters four and five. Not only do they defy Sanhedrin's direct orders here, they then turn around and evangelize them. They witness to them. The same folks trying to lock him up. The Jewish leaders say in verse 28, didn't we tell you not to teach in this name? Are you hard of hearing? And, and by the way, notice they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name. Didn't we t t tell you not to teach in this name? That's how hard their hearts are. Can't say his name, Jesus. But I love the apostles' reply in verse 29. No, 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 we, we heard you, but didn't you hear us? 
conversations are a two-way street. Were you listening? Because we told you something back in chapter 4 too. Didn't we tell you that we were just going to keep preaching Jesus anyway? Like you can, you can release us. You can arrest us as many times as you want. Release us as many times. But we're just going to go on preaching. We have no intention of being quiet about Jesus. They said in chapter 4, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then in both chapters, the apostles proceed not only to stand up to them and defy them, but to preach the gospel to these, these leaders who are trying to kill them. They witness directly to them. It said, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, but God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. But then they add this new twist to their gospel presentation Uniquely here in chapter 5, verse 32, they say, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is who? The Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They, they exult, we've got the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, the Spirit makes all the difference. The same Spirit that lived in them, that emboldened them, that empowered them, with this kind of supernatural power, miracles and healings and supernatural boldness to stand up in the face of opposition, that same spirit now lives inside you if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And that means that our gospel ministry still today is empowered. It's empowered. Remember, back in chapter 1, you will receive my power when... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. God is not just behind this gospel movement. He's not just underneath it, bolstering it, supporting it, pushing it along, prodding it, pulling it, helping it. God is personally in it. Because he's in you and in me. God is inspiring and animating the advancement of his kingdom in word and in deed through his people, the church, all throughout this world. You have, those of you this morning who have come to saving faith in Jesus, you have all the power of the resurrected Christ living right inside you. That is, that is as dumbfounding as any spiritual truth you know, that you could read. In all of scripture you've got all the power of the resurrected jesus living inside you yeah amen now if we could only manage to stop quenching it so much perhaps we too might heal folks and hang out with angels and move mountains according to jesus who knows what god might do through us church may we know the fullness of god's power made available to us through his spirit for the sake of his great gospel commission. That's why Jesus fills us with his power. Remember the rest of chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit fills us with God's power, but it's power for a purpose. And the purpose 
is the Great Commission. It's gospel ministry to the lost and broken. Number five. In both chapters four and five, we see the Sadducees fear what might become of their own power, their own prestige, their position, their privilege. If the gospel breaks out, they know they're in jeopardy. And so they warn the apostles to keep quiet. But what's new in chapter 5 is the rage that they express. Verse 33 says that when the apostles defied them and tried to evangelize them, many were enraged and wanted to kill them. So much so that they have to be argued out of murder, talked down from murder by the wiser, cooler-headed Gamaliel. Gamaliel was quick history on him. He was the grandson of the famous rabbi Hillel, first century Judaism. But even more significantly, we're going to learn later in chapter 22 that Gamaliel served as a mentor to a certain young Saul of Tarsus before his conversion and his christening as Paul, the apostle who penned half of our New Testament. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe that Saul may have very well been on, served on this angry council right here in chapter 5. Because later, I'll give you two reasons, later in chapter 26, Paul's going to confess that I not only locked up many of the saints in prison in Jerusalem, but when they were put to death, he says, I cast my vote against them. So Paul was a voting member. This is the voting council, Sanhedrin. And secondly, how else will we know? We get a detailed account there in verses 34 through 38 of everything that Gamaliel said. Remember, he sent out the apostles. They sent them out. And then we get this detailed record of, of his speech. Well, how, how could Luke have possibly known that and recorded it for us? Unless there was a mole, there was an insider. It was Saul before his conversion. But in any case, they were enraged. Even after you know, Gamaliel's wise words of warning here, he said, hey, if this gospel thing, if it's of man, it's going to fail anyway. But if it's of God, we're not going to be able to stop it anyway. So either way, just, just let them be. You better let them be. And they take his advice, but they're still so darn mad about it. They just can't help themselves. They call him in. Well, we're at least, we, least going to beat him first. So they call him in, and they do. They fly. And, and this is not like a slap on the wrist. I don't know if you remember Jesus' scourging before his crucifixion, the 40... 40 lashes minus one, cat of nine tails. He beat them before releasing them. And so we need to take note of that as well, that the gospel is not the only thing that grows. So too does the opposition to the gospel. Just as God's kingdom of light and freedom is advancing in the world through his church and our ministry of the gospel, so too is the opposition to the gospel, so too is the kingdom of darkness and hell. Satan's got a kingdom too, and it's advancing all around us every day in the world. And we see it already on display here in the book of Acts. Chapter 4, it was a, merely a verbal warning. Quit talking about Jesus. In chapter 4, they up the ante, they get beat. And already by chapter 7, two weeks from now, 
we're going to see Stephen become the first martyr of the church, killed for the faith. Because not only is the gospel offensive, point number three, it's also threatening. The gospel is inherently threatening. Brothers and sisters, if, if we're not offending people and threatening them, we're probably not preaching the gospel. The gospel threatens us today in the exact same way that it threatened these Jewish leaders 2,000 years ago. It threatens us in two ways. First, the gospel threatens to out us as the sinners that we truly are. Like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we are guilty, trying to dress up our sin, trying to hide it from God and ourselves and others so we can feel okay, so we can feel superior. That was hypocrisy we talked about last week. But the gospel outs us. It exposes our sin. And secondly, the gospel threatens to oust us, to remove us from our position at the center of our own tiny little narcissistic universes, the gospel says, believe it or not, all of this, all of creation and human history does not revolve around you. In fact, your own life isn't even about you. Your life, as well as everything else in creation, exists for the glory of God. This is why the nations rage. This is why Putin invades countries. This is why the Sadducees rage. This is why we rage against the gospel until we finally wave our white flag and we surrender and we realize what good news, what gloriously good news it is that we don't have to pretend like we have it all together when deep down we know that we don't. What gloriously good news it is that we're not the center of our universes. What a sad little universe that would be. But rather, God's centrality means that you and I are caught up in, that we get to play an integral role in the greatest story that's ever been told. And it's true. It's the story of the gospel. That our lives have infinitely more meaning and purpose and joy with God at the center than with you at the center. Friend, if you have not yet realized that, I would just paraphrase the words of Gamaliel here for you, that if your plan for your life is of man, if it's of you, if it's your plan, then it will fail. But if you buy into God's plan, nothing can stop the Lord. You do not want to be found opposing God. Stop resisting the Lord this morning. If the Spirit is softening your heart, is speaking to your heart, is convicting you of your sin this morning, is showing your, you your need for Jesus this morning. Stop resisting the Lord. You do not want to be found opposing the Lord. Give in, surrender, repent, and trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. This morning can be the day of your salvation. Finally, number six, both of these encounters in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, they end with the apostles praying to God and witnessing for him all the more. At the end of chapter 4, you remember, they were filled with boldness as they continued to speak the word of God. But here at the end of chapter 5 now, they're filled with something new. What is it? 
Verse 41, they left the presence of the council, what? Rejoicing. They're filled with joy. They are filled with joy. Why? They just got beaten half to death. Why are they filled with joy? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Like the martyrs of the Protestant Reformation, of whom John Fox writes, although they suffered in their bodies, they rejoiced in their spirits. Some professed that they had never been so merry before in all their lives. Some leaped for joy. Some, for triumph, would put on their wedding garments. Going to the fire, others kissed the stake, embraced the flames, clapped their hands, sang psalms of praise. Or like Richard Vermbrandt, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, who was in prison for over 14 years, in a Romanian jail cell for smuggling gospel tracts into Soviet Russia in the wake of World War II, even going so far as to evangelize the communist troops there to lock him up, put him in his place. He would preach the gospel to them, and in his memoir, Tortured for Christ, Vermbrandt recalls being beaten so severely that chunks of his flesh would be ripped from his body. They burned holes all the way through him with a fire poker, and then he would be locked up in solitary confinement for weeks on end, sometimes months. But they couldn't break him. And every time the guards would come to give him his one meal for the day, they would always find him praying, singing psalms, hymns of praise, and dancing around his jail cell for joy. Why? Because, friends, the gospel is worthy all of these brothers and sisters rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus because they realized that the gospel is uniquely worthy of their hearts, their minds, their souls, their strength, their lives. Jesus himself said, a disciple is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But then he said, rejoice and be glad when others revile you and persecute you on my account for your reward is great in heaven. That's why they rejoiced because they knew this life is just a shadow, just a glimpse of what lies in store. The apostles rejoiced because they knew they were storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and so before he was crucified upside down, because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus, the apostle Peter would exhort his church to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Likewise, the apostle Paul, before he was beheaded for his faith in Jesus, wrote, we rejoice in our sufferings because this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, that's what lies in store for those of us who are faithful to suffer with Christ in this life. And let's not pretend 
that, that you, what you and I experience today in any sense can be called persecution on, on any sense on the same scale as what the, the reformers and the apostles and Richard Wurmbrand and others uh, and, and other brothers and sisters all around the world today in Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia we, we are blessed to live in a country where we aren't persecuted for our faith yet but we do and we should and we will suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus are you suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus the gospel is inherently offensive and threatening will we rejoice though trusting that the gospel is worth it it is worthy of our lives